Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Social media has opened up opportunities for sharing, networking, self-expression, and collaboration that were previously difficult, if not impossible, for many. In plenty of ways, it has pluralized and democratized communication. But while social media offers opportunities, it also comes with risks and costs. At times, it becomes an utter wasteland, a haven for harassment and a steward of violence. One way to manage such behavior online is by holding people to account for their speech and their actions. But how should that be done? And by whom? Or, more to the point, what does accountability look like in the era of social media? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Julie Lalonde. She's an internationally recognized women's rights advocate, public educator, and the author of Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death of Julie Lalonde. Let's start by trying to understand the sort of behavior we're going to be talking about today when we're concerned with the need for accountability. One of the central forms of abuse is online harassment, which can itself take many forms. Uh, How do you think about online harassment? As a woman who has been on the internet since 1995, to me, uh, online harassment is just a new tool for an old form of violence, making women feel like they don't belong somewhere or that they need to toe a line because they're there, them being there is a privilege and not a right. Like those things are, these are extremely old ideas. um, And I think we've lost a lot of opportunity to address online harassment over the last few decades because we've really stuck to this naive idea that this is a new monster and we don't know how to address it. Um, And I think because of that, we've lost, like we're playing catch up to an issue that we could have done a heck of a lot more for 20 years ago. Because the the, the internet has been mainstream for what, 30 years now? Social media apps and messenger apps for for 20, give or take, you know, when we look at So, yeah, I mean, I, I want to chase down this point of, of this isn't new. I mean, by saying it's new, we get we get to get away with things, don't we? I mean, what do we get to get away with when we say, oh, this is just new, we can't wrap our heads around it? Well, I think systems get to play the whole, this isn't about us, this is about this issue. Um, mm-hmm. So you have institutions who, for example, have safety protocols in their workplace but have absolutely nothing in place if one of their employees is targeted uh, online, whether it's through just the work that they do or through intimate partner violence situations. Um, So it allows institutions to kind of wipe their hands of it and say, well, we don't really know what this is and this doesn't really involve us. Um, And I think that's kind of the, the bigger issue. And I also think that because it's a tech issue for too long, we've turned and to tech experts solely um, and thought, you know, well, one, you know, women's, rights advocates and folks who do anti-racism work, you know, they're not the best position to do this work because there's just so many technicalities and understanding online harassment. You don't really know how these platforms work. Um, And so we've looked to tech to solve a problem that they created in so many ways and could have anticipated and didn't. Um, And so again, they're true experts on this, the folks who do work on, you know, how to de-radicalize spaces, how to address homophobia, racism, violence against women, all of those folks are not at the table when decisions are being made. And I know because whenever I've sat at those tables 
I've been very much in the minority and been surrounded by people who work um, in tech firms or people who work with police. Um, and those are not the folks who can address that problem because they haven't, they created it in many ways, but they're also upholding um, those problems in the work that they do every day. So who ends up being responsible? I mean, one of the, the, the big debates right now playing out around social media is liability. And that takes the form of, okay, is, for instance, is a platform a publisher? Are they more or less, you know, a tool that others use and the others have a publisher? And that has implications for liability. When it comes to online abuse, harassment, ultimately, it strikes me that we have a real problem of, of it seems to be nobody's responsibility and therefore nobody does anything about it. Uh, who should we be holding liable here? Who should we look to and say, okay, this is your job to monitor, to police, and to remedy this? Yeah, I mean, I think you've really hit the nail on the head in the sense that it's a real hot potato issue right now where people love to claim expertise, but then also argue it's not their responsibility. So right. we've seen it. Yeah, we've seen it jump from place to place. And I think it's multi-pronged in the sense that I think we need to be holding the platforms accountable. People forget it's a business um, mm -hmm. and it's an industry and we shouldn't allow industries to operate in Canada if they're violating Canadian law. <laughs> um, and using myself as an example, a few years ago, um, I was one of the first kind of feminists in Canada to be verified on Twitter. And the reason for that is because I, I called a meeting with Twitter to say, I keep being impersonated online and in order to prove that I am who I am, even though I've been online, you know, I've been on Twitter since like 2011 or something, and these accounts are two days old, I have to send you a copy of my ID. I don't want to send you a copy of my ID. This is ridiculous. Um, and they said, well, you know, absolutely. Okay, so I was verified that protected me, but then I was also told you can report this to police. Like it's a crime to impersonate someone online and in particular to impersonate me to make absolutely like disgusting racist comments mm -hmm. um and so when i contacted ottawa police i was told i was literally sent a link to the terms of service for twitter and told how to report it to twitter um <laughs> and so i ended up getting into a back and forth and again because of my privilege because i've been doing this work for so long i had contacts with an ottawa police so i made a call and was like that's not how this works like one i know what the heck the terms of use are for twitter but also they don't get to commit a crime and hide behind, well, our terms allow it, or this is the process. Like, that's not how this works. And so that's, we need absolutely the folks who in this country, whether it's law enforcement at the kind of macro level, um, I know the RCMP does a lot of work on this, to take it seriously um, and to recognize that every week I get sent tweets that would absolutely put someone in prison if they tweeted that at Trudeau. Um, and it's not a coincidence that Michelle Rempel is one of the few people in Canada to actually have someone be criminalized for online threats. And good for her. Like, that absolutely should have been the case. But it's telling that people tweet heinous things at me and my colleagues every single day. And we're told to just report it to Twitter. And even the police say, like, Meh, there's nothing we can do about it. So I think it's up to lawmakers to enforce Canadian law around hate speech, around threats, around inciting violence, all of those things. But I think it's also up to the Canadian government and our, you know, the folks that we elect to represent us to say, do we want to allow industry in this country that's harming us and move away from this, like, quite frankly, embarrassing, like pathetic vibe that Canadians have, which is like, well, we want to be cool, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. 
I've sat at tables with with members of parliament and senators and also Facebook and the folks from Twitter. And it's embarrassing to watch the ways they're like groveling at the feet of Facebook and Twitter saying, don't leave our country. We don't want to be too like it's embarrassing. (laughs) And so I think we need to take it seriously as an industry. And we, you know, whether you're any industry that operates in Canada has to follow Canadian law. And if not, we should be pissed off about it. And that includes what the heck's going on on social media. Yeah, I mean, because this is taking place in the backdrop, against the backdrop of, of a debate about, quote-unquote, cancel culture versus accountability. The, this idea that if you're going to be taking up space, online or offline, but largely a lot of this plays out online, uh, then there's, you're going to be held accountable for what you say or do. But it seems like that accountability is variable. And it also seems to me that while a lot of the cancel culture debate seems to be about political correctness gone too far, there's this whole cesspool of of abuse and harassment that is driving people away from speech, that's driving people away from the internet, that is effectively canceling people who are just trying to live their lives because they're being abused. And, And I wonder to what extent the the real heart of the matter when it comes to speech and being comfortable speaking in an online space, the debate is is actually about harassment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's my big argument all the time when people talk about freedom of speech and it's like, okay, well, what about those who are not able to speak because of the level of harassment and threats we receive? And I say that as someone who personally has experienced kind of the absolute worst parts of the internet. I mean, on multiple occasions in my career, I couldn't speak in public without a police presence because of the level of harassment and also organized mobs that were organizing through Reddit forums and 4chan and even Twitter to target me. Um, earlier this year, I tweeted out, hey, you know, while you're canonizing and idolizing Kobe Bryant, he was an admitted rapist and survivors are listening to how you talk about him. I got half a million death threats. Um, and I know that because Twitter celebrates whenever a tweet of yours goes viral. <laughs> and so they like informed me like, congratulations, 1.4 million people have seen this tweet and there's half a million responses. And they were all versions of I'm coming to your house to kill you. Um, people posted the address of every single Julie or Lalonde in the city of Ottawa and took pictures of their Google Maps and sent it to me saying they were going to come to my house and murder and rape me. Um, and the police were like, this is heinous and it's probably not safe for you to be in your own home. But the IP address says they all live outside of Ottawa, so there's nothing I can do. Um, so what does that say about my capacity to do my work as an advocate for women's issues that I have to think, will this result in me having to flee my home? And yet the people who are tweeting these things at me have never suffered a consequence. Um, so Quite personally, I have oftentimes had to stop and think, like, is this going to ruin my life? Um, And it's literally my job to speak on behalf of survivors. So this is not like some paranoid delusion. Like, I have very concrete reasons to to think about my freedom to say what I am allowed to say. I've never been sued for libel or defamation because I've never said anything libelous, right? So it's not like the law is coming down on me because I'm contributing to hate speech or I'm smearing some innocent person. I'm literally stating straight facts <laughs> and people are telling me I need to kill myself. Um, and to, yeah, to oper- to have that be in this larger conversation where every billionaire author is lamenting that mm, criticism hurts my feelings. Um, 
It's like, go Scrooge McDuck in your house and like dive into your pile of coins and like hope they keep you company. You know, the rest of us are just trying to do the right thing. Um, and again, I say this as someone who is white, who is able-bodied, who speaks multiple languages, who, you know, is educated, who has access. And I am constantly being threatened. Um, and so who the heck is being protected in these moments? Because, yeah, I'm about as privileged as it gets in this conversation along women's issues. And I still get reminded every day that, like, yeah, but you're still a woman who deserves to die. And, like, we just accept this. We, like, literally just accept that that's life online. And, and like you said, in, in the background, we have to listen to privileged, rich people talk about political correctness. It's infuriating. I remember a couple of weeks when I lived in Vancouver back-to-back where I'd had run-ins with prominent right-wing commentators who had done the sort of quote-tweet thing where they know that that's going to sick people on you. Mm-hmm. Or they are at least they're aware that their followers, presumably they're aware their followers will respond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- this is a common thing. And when that, when that sort of thing happens... Um, the the response you get is the sort of response that you're talking about, not not to the scale, but you get awful things, and uh, which serves to silence people, right? And and people know they're doing it. If you've got a million followers or five hundred thousand followers, and it's hard to imagine that you're not aware that the some of them are rabid, um, and you drag someone into something like this, well then of course. That that's that is a predictable outcome, uh, but it, you know the but it comes from everywhere. And we, the the point you made about IP addresses is is fascinating to me because it makes me wonder to what extent the huge part of this problem is that it just it just transcends jurisdictions, right? I mean the platforms are obviously at the heart of it because they get all the data goes through them, but if it's a threat made to someone in Ottawa from someone in uh, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, what do you do about that? I mean, you know, obviously, like, who, who investigates that? Who enforces the law across borders, across states, across provinces? And and are we okay just leaving this through the cracks? In an era in which we want some accountability for, for behavior online, is it that we can't get it because the IP addresses transcend borders? <laughs> it's, it's so bananas that that has absolutely been the case for me in every single example of reporting to police, which again, I've been doing this work for 17 years. I have personal experience. Um, you know, I was stalked by an ex-partner for 10 years. Like I am not naively walking into a police department and thinking they're going to solve my problems, but it is incredibly telling that in all of the cases where this has happened to me, the in, in tw- two cases in particular, the detective said to me, I know this has to be someone from Ottawa. There's no reason why um, you know, I tweeted about an, uh, a misogynist film that was going to be played at the Mayfair. And oh, I yeah. heard, yeah. Um, and as a, yeah, and just saying like, hey, I'm not going to the Mayfair now or ever. Um, the Mayfair ended up actually listening to community and deciding, you know what, we're not going to show this. And it ended up showing up at City Hall. So the film was not censored. It was not shut down. It actually probably got more publicity. Um, and I got an obscene amount of vitriol, including... A man who's, you know, folks in Ottawa might know, co-founded Vice, started a group about proud men, um, called me a fascist on Sun TV. I got hundreds of death threats. Um, and there was a clear link between he told his, you know, upwards of a million followers that I was a fascist and here's her information. And then all of a sudden I'm getting thousands of threats. Like, I mean, it's clear this is related to what happened. 
Um, and the police said that, like, this is an Ottawa story. Like, of course, it's Ottawa people that are threatening you, but their IP addresses say they're in Europe. So there's nothing you can do. Um, so even when you have a cop being like, it's so obviously someone in your community, but no crown would be able to make a case. Um, a defense would chew this up, blah, blah, blah. So don't stay at your house. You know, uh, if I now have a flag on my address. So if I call the police, they're not going to send two cruisers because they know that's probably a legitimate threat. I had to tell them that, you know, if someone calls and says that there's, you know, I need a SWAT team at my house, that that's not true. Like, bananas and that's again in a case where a police officer knew how the internet worked knew that vpns mean people can hide their ip addresses and believed me that this was not only awful but in fact happening in my community and they still closed the case with there's nothing we can do so in some Um, senses you have the best possible experience at least in reporting this right like you mentioned that you come from a position of relative power and privilege where you're you're listened to and you have that authority but presumably yeah. lots of people don't, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and and in my conversations with them, it was like, why do I have to know the one person on the right. squad who actually gives a shit about this issue and understands it in order to be able to get this? And by the way, this sucks. <laughs> right. I mean, the only reason why I've had people actually criminalize was because it was one man in particular who had targeted multiple people. And it was on his blog with his name, his picture. Like he was quite blatant in his um, targeting of me. So in that case, it was quite clear. He's the author. He takes ownership. You know, so he was criminalized for that. But that's it. Um, every other case, you know, either police were just like, uh, it's not really a threat. Like, it sounds scary, but like losers on the Internet do this all the time. Or they do investigate and come back with, yeah, no, um, it's outside our jurisdiction. And so it's like, OK, then what do we do about it? And when I talk to my colleagues in the U.S., you call the FBI. If someone threatens you online, if someone tries to swat you, if someone posts your private information online, you call the FBI. It's a federal issue. Does that solve the problem? Absolutely not. But it's a heck of a lot easier to get something done. Um, And it's also a clear path. You live in like, you know, Sioux Lookout and someone's threatening you for your anti-racism work. Like, are you going to trust that like the one detachment officer at your OPP knows how to under, you know what I mean? Like, Right. It, we need a st- national strategy to, to streamline people actually getting help. And I think until we do that, there are zero consequences to people being nasty to you online. And that's why they're getting away with it. And I think that's the broader issue is like without consequences, people are not going to be held accountable. Full stop. And, and it's worth talking, making the distinction that we're talking about both the, the sort of illegal threats and legal posts and and behavior that is not just you know harassing but is strictly speaking illegal but also which is in one category but the other category is is behavior that may not be illegal but has the effect of bullying people into silence and terrifying people and doing real damage to people's mental health which isn't covered necessarily by law but which is in itself a huge problem that, that people ought to be held accountable for. And, and it strikes me that we were bad at addressing both of those forms, uh, but uh, at least we could imagine platforms being more aggressive on, on the, uh, the latter case. And I, and I wonder if we were to imagine a sort of comprehensive 
accountability system, what would we be having platforms do? I mean, rapid takedowns, um, bans, IP tracing. I mean, what, 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 what do we imagine them doing to, to hold people accountable? Uh, well, I would say absolutely all of those measures. Um, but also things like, which I will congratulate Twitter for having done, um, is, you know, there's tons of mute functions now which are available to folks. So for me, my experience of being online has gotten significantly easier as the years go on just because Twitter is the real main crux of the nonsense for me. And they now have so many mute functions that I can not, it doesn't stop people from tweeting these nasty things at me or from my followers from seeing them, but I'm not subjected to them. Um, and it was such an easy fix that took them forever to do. Um, and so I think that's one way to address the things that, yeah, are maybe not necessarily illegal, but are still awful um, and still serve to silence people. Um, but beyond that, the reality is, is that so many of the users on Twitter are trolls and troll accounts. And so if they were to actually purge their accounts, those accounts, they would lose a ton of money. And Twitter already had a hard time trying to sell itself to shareholders. It was going to be um, sold to Disney. And then Disney was like, I don't want to touch this because of the <laughs> level of nonsense. So they don't have an, a financial incentive to address the problem because, frankly, they're going to lose users. And their users and the number of them is part of the whole appeal. of Like, you have to be on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, I... I they're not going to do it themselves, basically. I mean, it seems like we're we're shaming social media companies into doing the right thing. And part of the problem is, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned earlier that Canada wants to be cool. We're, we're begging Twitter, Google, Facebook not to leave us high and dry. We've seen with Google what happens when they don't want to do something. They just say, we're not going to do it. You know, remember, they, they Canada said you need to have an ad registry of political ads for the election. And Google said, okay, well, we're just not going to do this then. <laughs> we don't need yeah. your, you know, couple million dollars. Who cares? Uh, and that presents a big structural problem, which is that I think to regulate properly social media companies, if you're governments, you need to band together. You need Europe. You need North America together. You need states to, to come together because they have more power collectively. But the public has power to shame social media companies into doing the right thing. Uh, you know, because Twitter could have foreseen this problem 10 years ago. They could have foreseen the filter solution 10 years ago. But as yeah. you said, it, it took them a long time to get there. And presumably that had to do with basically naming and shaming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely public pressure. And I think Mark Zuckerberg is really easy to hate. And I get it. The man is a clown. Right. So I get it. But I think we go hard on Facebook and we don't recognize that they're awful. Um but what social media platform isn't also doing heinous things? And I remember when I met with Twitter, their whole thing was, well, you know, we were, we're all about free speech. And that's why we were so integral to, um, you know, the Arab Spring. It's like, okay, cool. But like, you can't keep writing that out for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, that's like people who talk about their glory days are in high school. And it's like, mm, that was 20 years ago. Um, that's how I feel about it. It's just like, they constantly come back. To, but it was helpful in the Arab Spring. I'm like, okay, sure. But the times have changed. And also, how many Arab Spring type events could have happened if people felt safer to speak openly um, and to tell their truth? And so I think instead of looking at it, as, yeah, I think looking at the missed opportunity piece, which we, again, never 
is never part of the freedom of speech conversation. It's never part of the accountability or cancel culture conversation. It's always, um, yeah, looking at how does it impact the most powerful people in the room instead of talking about how our inaction um, has made it that we only have a select number of powerful people because the rest of us are, you know, under someone's boot all the time. Uh, so, so to me, this is the heart of the entire debate. This is this is the core. And it, it is what you're saying, is that we have competing conceptions of liberty here. To even go back to sort of John Stuart Mill, who remains a hero of liberty for many and a hero for free speech, I mean, Mill says, the limits of my liberty sort of end when I do you harm, physical harm. That's where we say, okay, because now you're infringing on my liberty. Or, or at any other point where I am exceeding my liberty and infringing on your ability to be free. Typically, that's sort of understood in narrow senses and in physical senses. Like, you know, I can't restrain you and keep you from going out into the world. But we also know now that psychological abuse, mental uh, health abuse, trolling, online harassment is a form of restraining somebody's liberty. And, and so even on the old school million terms of maximizing liberty, you look at that and say, well, that's not okay. Right. Yeah. And yet, we, and yet people get away with it. Yeah. And, and I think people, it's, it's, I mean, it's an age old debate and I'm okay with that. You know, it's like my unpopular, unpopular feminist opinion that like, I'm probably going to be fighting with people about abortion for the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that because it is a big issue. Um, and it's a core value issue. It's an issue of ethics and moral compass. And I'm okay if we keep, you know, debating back and forth what does and does not constitute freedom of speech for the rest of my lifetime i'm okay with that because it is it has practical implications it has philosophical implications and that's okay that we're constantly chatting about it but we haven't what's frustrating to me in the last few years in particular with you know the rise of me too and the black lives matter conversation about calling out and calling attention to the systems that keep people quiet is People love that conversation as like, ooh, interesting. And then, you know, very quickly move towards, but for the greater good of the rest of us, we need to be able to just say whatever the hell we want. Or, you know, for the greater good of people, you shouldn't criti criticize J.K. Rowling because whatever, you know. Um, and that's what's frustrating to me. It's like, I'm okay with us having a chat, but there's practical implications to this. Um, and I have yet to see broad support for... Uh, yeah, to recognize how harassment in all of its forms keeps people quiet and that a bunch of people going after someone like again i'm picking on jk rowling but i mean the woman is so unbelievably untouchable financially in terms of her legacy um you know she's always going to be remembered as and revered in some way she, so like she's fine <laughs> yeah. you know but when she's i think about the people yeah she's fine she's, like right? yeah she, literally she is and and so for me, again, like whenever, or even Margaret Atwood, you know, like talking about like people were so mean to me because I said that I, you know, I signed that open letter in support of Stephen Gallup. Like, just, it's like, okay, but you're also an icon in this country. So take a little bit of criticism. It's okay. Um, and I think we conflate that with, well, Julie can't take a little bit of criticism online. Um, so why is she saying that we should go after this person? You know, and it's, again, it's like, look at the power differentials. Um, between me and someone who is a millionaire <laughs> and who's someone who could, you know, call the media tomorrow and share whatever story they want to sell. You know, their books are sold out before they even hit the press. Like, apples and oranges, people. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I think about this because I run my mouth all the time. I can't help myself, and and you know, I if I had two or one or two things change in my employment situation, that would be it for me. I would be I'd be doing something else. I have no idea what that would be, but it would be so. I would be clocking in. You know, the the step would be over for me. There's no safety net for me, right? And 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 it's stunning to me that we apply the same standard. As if there isn't an order of magnitude difference, as you mentioned, between you know you and me and Margaret Atwood and J.P. Rowell, right? Yeah. And 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 to me, that's that is a, a material difference, but also it helps us understand what accountability versus canceling is. Because yeah, I want to dip into this cancel culture. I'll stop doing the scare quotes because it's going to get irritating. But just imagine <laughs> I'm doing scare quotes from cancel culture. <laughs> that's how it but you know. Does anyone ever get canceled? I, you had a tweet about this that I quite liked where you said, okay, here are a few people who actually did. But, you know, for all the talk we do about cancel culture, who gets canceled and how often? Yeah, and for me, the complexity for me as a progressive is I think we need to acknowledge, like, it's not either cancel culture exists or it doesn't. I think, or that, you know, cancel culture doesn't exist because Mel Gibson still has a job. Um a campaign to get someone canceled, whether it's effective or not, is still cancel culture. <laughs> um, and I don't think we create enough space as progressives to acknowledge that. Um, so I do think cancel culture exists in some ways. Um, you know, the examples I gave of like Michael Richards, for example, Kramer from Seinfeld, uh, Winona Ryder, right? Um, Courtney Love, like there's there are people, Monica Lewinsky in oh, so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people who we have now in retrospect, and I think it's been an interesting couple years for, you know, as, as a millennial to see these women that I spent the whole 90s watching get canceled, being turned into memes and just being like a punchline, have kind of finally had their moment of redemption, right? Everything from Monica Lewinsky to even like Lorena Bobbitt, right? A recognition of like, this woman was raped, <laughs> Right. Um, right. And like, so this woman who was a punchline for many years is like, you made a rape victim a punchline. And in the case of Monica Lewinsky, you made a woman who was sexually harassed in the workplace into a punchline for decades. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting that we're having this cancel concert conversation while these women are kind of coming forward and being like, actually, you know, you were very wrong about me. Um, but again, the fact that Monica Lewinsky has been able to somewhat reemerge doesn't mean that she wasn't canceled. Um, and I think, yeah, we need to address the fact that people eventually coming back, they never come back in the same way. They very rarely get, you know, the second act that they quite frankly are deserving of. And again, why does Winona Ryder stealing from a Saks Fifth Avenue, like rich people stealing from rich people, why did we give a shit for so mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Right? Like, how does that impact you, um, as an everyday person, um, is, fascinating to me uh the ways in which we have absolutely canceled people and we have not objectively looked at who we've canceled and who we haven't who we've tried to cancel why we haven't been able to um and again i think the fact that r kelly still puts out music doesn't mean cancel culture doesn't exist we have been trying to cancel him um but the culture doesn't allow us to right because i mean the, you know one, one other way of conceiving a lot of this is that there are is a public space and the public has a collective capacity and, and right 
to decide what it wants to see in that space. And if you and if you don't like it, and we've seen lots of this, those who feel like they can't participate in in the mainstream, quote unquote, or who who are are asked to leave their jobs, find somewhere else to go. I mean, the other thing is like, it isn't as if this is ancient Greece and we have a vote and we choose to ostracize someone and they're sent to an island that you've never heard of that isn't even mapped, uh, never to be heard from again. It seems increasingly so that they're popping up in new outlets and new subcultures, countercultures, and, and having a, a life there, right? So not only is it the case that you don't have a right to a platform necessarily, like a big platform, uh, there, are, there are alternatives for people. Yeah, yeah, and that's really, to me, the concrete way in which I try to explain to people the difference between, you know, some big mucky muck being criticized or being losing opportunities versus, you know, activists who make a mistake and we all, you know, grab our pitchfork and try to drive them out of the community is, you know, Louis C.K., for example, right? Louis C.K. has not only material wealth, but he also has community. He has a network of people that would theoretically and have, you know, surrounded him to make sure that he's okay as a human being, mentally, physically, otherwise. Because um, I don't want to downplay the impact it has on being canceled. It sucks. Like, it does suck. <laughs> as yeah. someone who has, you know, had people try to cancel me, it hurts, right? And you feel misunderstood and you feel like everything you do to try to defend yourself just ends up digging you a bigger hole. Um, and I think because we haven't figured out as a culture what accountability looks like, people, when they do apologize, we say, oh, your apologies, are, it's just PR. When people say, you know, I want to pay restitutions, we call it blood money. Um, you know, like we ha and then we say, you know, we don't believe in prisons, but then we're mad when the person doesn't go to jail. So I get that we're, you know, people are just trying to make do with their screw ups. Um, but again, you know, Louis C.K., if he really wanted to get help for what he was doing, absolutely has material and otherwise access to make that happen for himself. If I'm, you know, an activist and I do something shitty and everyone ostracizes me, chances of me having access to the places where I can go to get help and to feel supported and to be brought back into the fold are limited. Like you're completely cut off in many cases from community. And so again, that's not to say we should just let abusers exist in activist spaces. Absolutely not. But it's a recognition that like that person has committed harm and unless we do, like you say, where we completely put this person into exile, they're still going to exist in our collective communities. And so we need to make sure that that person has a reason to want to get better. Because for me, that's where us progressively really screw up. And I saw that with Louis C.K., for example, where he went right wing real fast in his mm -hmm. comedy afterwards. And we could debate whether or not he had that in his heart the whole time. But as someone, again, who has endured this kind of response from my community, I absolutely understand why someone would do that. Because you feel vulnerable, you feel shamed, you feel awful, and then here's a community of people opening up their arms to you and saying, you're a victim here. It's how people get um, radicalized, right? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely see that. And again, I, I mean, that's a controversial thing. And people think, you know, if you become, you know, anti you know racist within five minutes, you were racist the whole time. Probably. Like, I'm not just... Right. discrediting that but to me it's not shocking that louis ck went from making feminist content being out as an abuser and then making jokes about you know children getting shot in schools um because who rallied to his support was the right-wing group of people who saw him as a martyr of freedom of speech 
Um, and that's a failure on behalf of progressives to not create concrete accountability steps. And we just shun people and then wonder why they don't get better. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I absolutely agree. And, and I think as well that while, one, we need accountability, there needs to be consequences. Two, we need to protect people from further harm. Uh, there is plainly a palpable sense of vengeance that gets played out that that is common to life offline off and online, but gets played out in such a, a grandiose and aggressive way online that it can't be denied that the vengeance there is strong. And not only that, I think it's compounded by a desire to for, that we all have, which is to be part of an in-group. That we all have that psychological vulnerability and need to be a part of a community and want to be part of the in-group. And so it does cascade and it does compound that that vengeance. And, I, and there are days where I look and say, what good is this doing? Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I, I just I, like materially, like, like no, no joke, what good comes from this? Yeah, I'm a, a big believer in asking the question who benefits a lot, <laughs> whether it's like who benefits from me beating myself up or like who benefits from this exile and shame and shunning. Um, kind of mentality. And again, I understand why people feel like rejecting the, you know, they go low, we go high. I get it. I felt that way. You know, I'm right away calling out abusers and people are telling me that I need to be empathetic towards them. It's like, okay, well, can I first take a beat to recognize that there's victims involved here? You know? Um, so I understand that feeling in a big way. Um, but again, I think we're not practicing what we preach. And we're not having concrete conversations about what accountability looks like in practice. And again, not just from my experience, you know, personally, but also things like, you know, when the Trudeau groping scandal came out and I was said he apologized to her 20 years ago. She's not asking for anything else from him. Who benefits from this story? Um, when the Tony Clement nude situation happened and I said he's both a creep to women and you shouldn't blackmail people for their nudes. I mean, in both of those cases, I was dragged by progressives. Mm. Um, and in it's like, Trudeau to me, that's case, actually the woman the... wanted to be left alone, right? Yeah, yeah. She was like very clear in saying, I didn't bring the story forward. I don't want anything from him. I don't want to be named. And she, in fact, ended up having to out herself to say, once and for all, leave me the hell alone. Mm. And I had to sit in a space where people are like, well, we need to violate her consent to make a point that violating consent is bad. <laughs> right. right. And I was like, that's not what accountability looks like. Um, and it's, again, the same thing with the Tony Clement situation. Like what happens when people we don't like are also victims? It's complicated people. Um, and I shouldn't be vilified for saying like, OK, well, then what is what does accountability even look like to us then? And and do you not realizing you're actually perpetuating the idea of a perfect victim? And haven't we spent years unpacking why that's problematic? <laughs> It's the same reason we don't, yeah. like, prison rape jokes aren't funny, right? Like, yeah. we, we seem to make exceptions to people that we've we've marginalized, and, we, and that's okay, as if these aren't human beings who are being abused. And that, again, as an advocate, I speak, like, survivors are always listening to what I'm saying, and if I take a line that says, and I think we should all think about that as progressives, if you're taking a line that says, I believe survivors, except if I don't like them, um, then that's what you end up with these situations where, you know, the woman who came forward against Joe Biden, people are just like, no, I don't, there's no way, um, you know, with, so it's like, okay, well then we're not being consistent. And then we're mad that we're, you know, that changes aren't happening. Um, and so for me, the, the, as a progressive, 
I think we have to spend the time to sit down and think about accountability in a super concrete way because we're contradicting ourselves all over the place. And then we're furious that when people are outed or choose to name their past behavior, that they screw it up. (laughs) And it's like, well, then give them a template for how to do it well. Because so far people are, you know, and if if they're floundering for too long, they will absolutely be scooped up by the kinds of people that we don't want in our communities. On that point, I mean, you're an advocate for women's rights and a public educator. I mean, what what has your work taught you about the capacity for people to actually change? I have seen that when people are surrounded by a firm but supportive community, that they absolutely can come back. Like, absolutely. And I, I have done work. I mean, I've worked, I work with groups ages 12 and up. Um, and train about eight to 10,000 people every year, the vast majority of which would not identify as being remotely political in any way, shape or form. These are just everyday people. Um, and I've seen 60 some odd year old white men in a session have a light bulb moment and be like, oh my God, that makes complete sense to me. So again, I think if we don't believe that violence, you know, misogyny, racism, homophobia, if we don't actually fundamentally believe that those things can be prevented and unlearned, then what the hell are we doing? Um, Because we're just preaching to the choir and that makes us feel comfortable and it makes us feel righteous um, instead of having those uncomfortable conversations of like, okay, when you say like, oh, I've just given up on my racist uncle, like I just can't. It's like, okay, but who's going to challenge your racist uncle? And now people of color have to put up with you not having patience with him. And if you personally can't be the one to get him to see the light, find somebody who can Um, because he's a part of our community (laughs) Um, and you don't get to wash your hands of it because it's annoying. Um, and as someone whose job it is to be an educator, then yeah, it's literally, it's my job to have these conversations with people, but it's difficult because I see sometimes people are hesitant to own their failures because they think, oh my God, I'm going to be canceled. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. (laughs) Like, oh, we will ruin your life. You know, like that shitty Facebook post from five years ago, absolutely is an impediment to you being able to get a promotion. So like, I can see why people are not owning their stuff. Like I see it. I'm not, it's not okay, but I absolutely understand it. Yeah. We really haven't created, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting for all the, the talk about creating safe spaces and, and, and having empathy, sympathy and transforming people. We really haven't created a space. I'm talking about progressives specifically, but course more generally too we really haven't created a space welcoming to that have we no no like not at all and i see it from the sort of most minor of offenses if you want to use that language to like egregious acts of violence and coercion we have not created that space and again i say this as progressives but those models exist, you know, like indigenous folks have been doing, you know, talking circles and have been doing rehabilitation and have been doing like incredible stuff to keep people in the fold. And there are some first nations communities who also have it part of their ethos that like, there comes a point where you cannot be helped and we will shun you. Um, but that's not our first step. (laughs) Um, and even if that was our, our approach, it's like, okay, but that's, there's an understanding that that person can't get better, but we don't even attempt. I think generally kind of on the mainstream, we don't even attempt that first step right away. We're just like, I don't want to have to deal with this person. Um, and I understand if you've been personally victimized to have that attitude, absolutely. You don't owe your abuser anything, but
by definition, anyone who does any kind of mediation, conflict resolution, any of that kind of restorative justice stuff will tell you that if the person who committed the harm is not willing to own that, then those circles are useless. Um, and we haven't talked about how do you get someone to own it. And I think part of it is because they know the second they own that, I'm done. Um, and that we created that monster, which means we can undo it. Well, let's close on this point, um, the undoing it. I mean, you know, we we can imagine what individual change would look like and individual dispositions, dispositional change would look like. What about structural change? If we were saying, if we want to look at a handful of, of systemic reforms that we need to pursue, if we want to take seriously reducing harassment, holding people to account, but also rehabilitating them, what would those structural changes look like? Well, I think we need to focus on prevention as much as possible um, because that even when we when we focus on prevention ideally we prevent a lot of the harm but we've also put in place a culture and a society that shows that there are consequences for people who do not you know adhere to the rules that we've established which is you know anti-oppression and all of those things so focusing on prevention talking to folks as young as possible I mean it is the easiest way to address this stuff but I think taking the time to really think about whatever institutionally you're talking about, whether it's the workplace, the school system, your like punk community, whatever it is, have concrete steps in place and really make it transparent that says, if you do X, Y, and Z, we're not going to be happy about it, um, but we're going to do our best to work together to get you to see the rights of your wrongs. Um, and if not, then there's the door. Um, but too often we've settled on these really... Um, yeah, like if you see something, say something. And these like very like loosey-goosey understandings of like, you know, survivors should dictate what that process looks like. And it's like, I don't know that we actually want that um, because, you know, there are survivors who will say, I want to make sure this man never gets a job anywhere else and that he dies in dire poverty. And that's completely valid for that person. But on a systemic level, on a societal level, we can't allow that. Um, and so I think we have to strike a balance between survivor-centered um, and really centering the person who's been harmed with a concrete recognition that even if you go to jail in Canada for sexual assault, chances are you're not going to die there. You're going to come out and you're going to be part of someone's community again. And that goes for all crimes. So we mm. all benefit from having a concrete conversation and making that just a transparent part of our, um, our work. And the example that I always think of that, you know, um, shout out to my friend, Kirlyn Furtiber, who taught me this years ago is like, there was a time where people were outraged that you had to have an exit sign on all of the buildings because people thought, well, I'm not an idiot. I know how to get out of here. Um, and then they were like, oh, no, actually, it's in case of an emergency. You need to have an exit sign. And now we don't even question exit signs. We know we see them everywhere. The same thing should go for, you know, policies that dictate what the consequence is for committing harm. Um, and really moving away from this, well, you know, if the cops aren't going to, it's the cops' responsibility. And I think moving more towards what about those things, like you mentioned, that aren't criminal, that are just nasty, that are not okay, that are harming people. And I think once we set the bar at harm instead of a legal threshold um, and start having practical conversations, I think we're going to see so much stuff change. And it's so exciting to think about. Well, I, I like to be able to leave it on a, on a hopeful point. That's a perfect that's a perfect place to call it a <laughs> podcast. Thank you very much for, for coming on and doing this today. This thank, was great. Thanks so much for having me. And to everyone listening, thank you as always for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed today. Uh, I, I will mention this again. Um, 
there is a book. Resilience is futile. Uh, um, the life and death of Julian alone. I highly recommend it. Uh, available wherever fine books are, are sold. As always, if you can support your local bookseller, um, that is an extraordinarily extraordinary way to go. Um, thank you as always for listening, and we will talk uh, with you again soon.